In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will be speaking with Afra Afsharapour, Professor of Law and Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of California, Davis School of Law. Professor Afsharapour focuses her research and scholarship on comparative corporate law, corporate governance, and mergers and acquisitions. She is a leading authority in corporate law, and her research often tackles novel and interdisciplinary questions. Today, we will discuss her current and exciting new project, which draws upon the behavioral finance literature to explore the interplay between bias, gender, and identity in the context of mergers and acquisitions. Welcome to the ESG Beat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and discuss my work with you. So I wanted to begin by having you help us understand what questions regarding gender and M&A has the corporate law literature already tackled? So there has been some exploration of the question of gender and M&A. And I would say actually most of the exploration of this has been not so much in the corporate law literature as much as it has been in the literature with respect to uh, uh, finance and sort of other empirical studies that have really focused in on the issue of gender um, and M&A specifically. So the couple of lines of literature that I talk about in the paper specifically that sort of connect uh, M&A decision-making to gender issues include the literature on sort of the benefits of board diversity, for both decision-making, and the corporate law literature has grappled with this some, um, which is sort of do boards with more women or other types of uh, other types of diversity? Do they make decisions differently? Do they monitor managers differently? And so some of the recent empirical literature uh, that has come out has actually takes that sort of question and the learnings from that area of um, research and applies it specifically to the M&A context. And so scholars are starting to observe connections basically between the extent of gender diversity on the corporate board and then the disposition of the company towards M&A strategies, right? So questions of things about, you know, do boards with greater amount of gender diversity, do they monitor management's M&A decision-making more vigorously, right? Um, are you know, boards with more women on them, uh, in, as part of that monitoring, are they asking additional types of questions? Does that lead to then things like a lack of, you know, less overpayment for um, in M&A transactions? So a study that came out a few years ago looked at, for example, the impact of director gender on M&A activity, and they actually found a negative association between you know, how many women directors are on a board and the average size of bid premiums. So they're looking specifically in, in that issue. And one couple of recent studies have looked specifically at the diversity of executives. Um, so the senior management officers, you know, CEO, C-level executives, and try to connect that to um, whether executives make decisions differently um, by, by gender, right? So, uh, one of the recent studies found that, for example, like firms run by women CEOs 
have um, less volatility in the M&A sort of decisions they make, um, and specifically that they overpay less in acquisitions. Um, and the, the, the thesis of the authors from the study is that there's basically some evidence that you know, male executives are more likely the empire build, have overconfidence and so forth, um, which results in more value-destroying acquisitions. That's so interesting. So you've really dug into the finance literature and you're now applying that in the context of corporate governance and corporate law. Let's now turn to the unanswered questions that you, your recent work has identified. Can you give us a sense of what where the gaps are in the current research? Yeah, I'll talk uh, a little bit about how do we think about um, you know applying the learnings from the the finance literature and the management literature that I looked at in this paper. Right, that literature suggests that the M and A decisions of officers and the amount of monitoring that the board does of these officers is somehow tainted by bias, some level of overconfidence and that the bias and overconfidence is connected to the sort of the gender of the executives and and the board and so then i look specifically in in my work at okay well how do we hold and i'm focusing in this paper on officers specifically but i have a larger project that'll look at sort of the full ecosystem of actors but in this project i look at the question of how do we under the law hold officers accountable so we have under the law sort of different types of mechanisms for holding officers accountable. So one way that we hold officers accountable is, for example, through fiduciary duty litigation. And fiduciary duty litigation, particularly with respect to officer accountability, is a particularly underdeveloped area of corporate law and jurisprudence. So you know, whether I think I, I raised some questions in this paper about whether it's really like whether we, fiduciary duty litigation could really truly address this issue of you know biases of executives, particularly if their biases are tied to gender. It just doesn't seem like litigation is going to be the right avenue, both because it's, there's so many um, procedural obstacles towards bringing fiduciary duty cases against officers generally, and because the courts are so reluctant um, to kind of wade in this particular area um, to try and enforce sort of shareholder rights in, in this way. Um, so then I look at this question of, you know, what about board independence? So one of the big movements that we've had um, in corporate governance over the past you know, 30 years has been a proliferation of independence on the board. And at least based on the body of literature that we have now, there's no indication that independence of the board is going to then necessarily impact sort of the monitoring that the board does of officers, particularly if that um, the decisions of officers is sort of impacted in any way by gender differences. So those are sort of the types of other kinds of avenues within corporate law that I look at. And I sort of come out with essentially a sort of a recommendation to say that we actually need to do a lot more research to figure out what might be the right legal 
mechanisms, whether it's actual mechanisms within the law or changes in the way that the norms of practice and legal practice and sort of MA decisions, you know, that might address this problem of, sort of gender identity and uh, MA decision making. If you could wave your, your magic academic wand, where would you direct the future research? I think it's, I, so certainly I actually rely quite a bit in this paper on the behavioral economics research um, to kind of think about what that research teaches us about how executives um, function. And so there's a lot of uh, sort of scholarly empirical research in that area. Um, but I think part of what we also need, and this is, I think, has to be interdisciplinary in a certain sense, um, is we need actually a lot more in-depth qualitative research to try and help unpack the sort of complicated relationship between bias and identity that I talk about in the paper, um, particularly in the M&A context. And so this is research that I think could be very much enhanced by having a combination of whether it's management experts and legal experts, particularly legal experts that write about deal-making, transactional law, the identity of you know, different types of actors within M&A, sort of address a bunch of questions that I think are currently missing from the literature. So one of the questions, for example, that I identify in the paper, and I sort of close the paper with a series of questions is, you know, this question of, you know, is it is it gender that actually kind of makes a difference or is it something or is it something else, right? So do women CEOs make decisions differently in the M&A context because they view their role differently um, or are they risk, you know, more or less risk averse sort of drawing from some of that literature? Or is their decision making different because boards that monitor women CEOs exercise oversight differently over a woman CEO, right? So there are a whole set of stories of prominent executives um, that both suggest that maybe women executives approach their jobs differently, but also that they actually may be subject to a different set of rules, right? That the boards interact with them differently because the executive is a woman. Um, and they're because there's so many fewer women, right, in these roles, particularly at large publicly traded um, companies. Then even questions about process. So I'm a former corporate lawyer and um, you know, process and how that, pro that process impacts board decision-making. And so one of the other questions that I think about is, you know, what processes do boards with a critical mass of women, for example, adopt when advising on and monitoring executives with respect to M&A transactions, right? Um, do the processes differ when you have a board with a critical mass of women versus when you don't? Do the processes of those boards differ when then the executive, the senior executives, particularly CEO, C-level you know, type executives are women or have a disproportionate number of sort of women, right? And then questions about advisors. So does the relationship and advice of advisors and in large M&A transactions, advisors play a really large role, whether it's investment bankers or lawyers. So do advisors interact differently 
in M&A transactions when the CEO is a woman? Do they provide information differently? Do they question the executive more? How do executives perceive this? So, you know, those are just some of the questions, but I think there are sort of a plethora of the types of questions that, that really need to be explored a lot more so that we can have a better understanding of how executives actually experience and execute M&A deals on the ground so that we can better address the behavioral biases and sort of the identity issues that I raise in, in my work. I wanted to end by asking you why any of this matters, and maybe you can give us a sense of the importance of M&A. Sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, uh, the M&A market, you know, and it might change as a result of the current COVID-19 crisis we're going through, but the M&A market is incredibly large, right? And for um, trillions of dollars of deals that are being done each year, and for big, large companies, as well as for small companies, sort of an, a decision to buy another large company or the decision to sell itself, it's sort of a, a, a really a fundamental decision that impacts all aspects of a company's life in in many ways. So whether it means you know that down the line they're going to have to lay off a portion of their employees to deal with the fact that they incurred unforeseen costs as a result of an M&A transaction or whether it means that the company can actually grow more as a result of a good M&A transaction, hire more people, right? Make more money for shareholders and other stakeholders, make different levels of decisions for stakeholders as a result of the benefits of their M&A. I think those are the reasons why I think this matters and why I think focusing on the players in M&A really matters. So if you think about the literature on sort of large transactions and an M&A, for example, you know, one of the things that we, that we find within that literature is, you know, M&A transactions are, are, are large and so significant. They might even be, in some ways, the fastest way to destroy value for a company, if not done well. So I think about a company, you know, that's kind of a Silicon Valley icon like Hewlett Packard. Right? They have, in lots of ways, been very disproportionately negatively impacted as a result of bad M&A decision-making. So taking even just as an example, their 2011 acquisition of you know, autonomy, where they spent $11 billion on a deal, and then within a year had to write down over $8 billion related to the acquisition because there were so many problems in that acquisition. It was a disaster. Uh, you know, shortly thereafter, they fired a whole bunch of employees, they then eventually sold the business and so forth. And so I think it's it's important for us as scholars to focus on this, not just because of the value to of M&A to the corporation and its shareholders, but because M&A decisions affect stakeholders more broadly. Well, thank you so much for sharing your recent work with us. I am excited to follow your future work in bias, identity, and M&A. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to speak with you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.